Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called. The way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing, shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Daniel can't... Excuse me. Um, yeah, you, you can't start a sermon with tears. You can end it, but we've got we to start higher than that. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. We have been going through <clears throat> the book of Mark these last few months. And what we've been saying is that when Jesus arrived on earth, he fundamentally redefined that ancient concept of the good life. And today, in the passage that I'm about to read to you from Mark, we see the full extent of the good life of Christ and the life that he came to offer us. So, we just heard from Isaiah. Now, with that firmly settled in your mind, let me read to you from Mark chapter 7. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now a woman, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. 
Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So here we have Jesus performing two miracles. First, he exercises a demon. And then secondly, he makes a man who is deaf hear and who has a speech impediment speak. But if we were only to fix our eyes on those two miraculous deeds, we would miss the the real significance of what is actually going on in this passage. We, we might walk away with the impression like, oh, that was, that was interesting. Oh, he's, he, something different. He puts his fingers in the ears and he spits and he touches it. That's, oh, how interesting. But that is not the primary thing that is going on in these two miracles. If we are to look beneath these two miracles and understand the larger reality to which they point us, it could be that that our entire lives are changed, fundamentally altered. So here's my whole sermon in miniature. In Jesus, a new way has been opened, but no one is worthy to walk in it. So Jesus has made us worthy. And that's the outline, three points. Number one, in Jesus, a new way has been opened. Number two, no one is worthy to walk in it. Number three, Jesus has made us worthy. So let's begin with point number one. A new way has been opened. And what we're going to do is begin with the second miracle, the deaf man and the one with the speech impediment, and work backwards. So both of these miracles, both of these miracles occur in Gentile territory, and that's going to be very significant later. In the second miracle, Jesus tells us that, or Mark tells us that Jesus is in the Decapolis, which is to say Gentile territory. And some people bring to him a man who is deaf and has some kind of speech impediment. He can't speak well. And Jesus takes this man aside, puts his fingers in the ears, spits, touches his tongue, and the man is healed by the power of Jesus. Now, that is an astonishing thing. That, make no mistake, that, that, is, that is an astonishing thing. And we see that the people are astonished by it very clearly in verse 37. It says, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. But they are only astonished. We can tell by what they say. They're only astonished by the miracle itself. The deaf hear, the mute speak. Look at this power. They're only astonished by the miracle itself. If they knew what was underneath that miracle, what surrounded it, what gave it life, what it is announcing, what the greater significance is, then I reckon they wouldn't even have been able to say that. They wouldn't have even been able to speak. They would have collapsed on the ground at what was going on. So, so what's under this miracle? That's the real question. Well, let's do a little language work uh, here um, because it, it's certainly... It's certainly there in the English, but it's crystal clear in the Greek. And I, you know, I, 
I don't like to parade out the, you know, the original languages often um, because I don't, want, I don't want it to seem like you can't have confidence in your English translations. Um, but you can. You can. They're very good. But here it's just, mm, you, you must see this. So let, let, me, let me do this work for you. Um, okay, Mark says that this man has a speech impediment. Those are the English words. But the word in Greek is mogalalos, which gives me great pleasure to say. And <laughs> Seriously, if you're in a bad mood and you go home, you do that. It, it, it'll put a smile on your face. Here in this passage, now here, here's the thing, mogalalos. Here in this passage, this is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. Now, that should surprise you because... There are other places where it talks about people being mute, people having a speech impediment. But in the whole New Testament, this is, they use other words for it other places. This is the only place where this particular word is used. So what's going on here? Well, it gets even more interesting when we get back to the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament was not written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. However, by Jesus' time, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was making the rounds and was pretty significant. Lots of people read it. If we go to Isaiah 35 that Daniel read for us earlier, we see in verse 6 it says this, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, Mogelalos, sing for joy. Now again, In the entire Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the only time this word is used. And and if you know your Old Testament, you know there are many places where it talks about people who are mute or people who can't speak well. And this is the only time this particular word is used. So wouldn't you know it, um, there's some significance here. It seems to me that while the miracle of Jesus loosing this man's tongue, giving hearing to him. While that is astonishing in and of itself, no doubt, it is pointing us to a much greater reality, namely that in this miracle, listen to this, that in this miracle, the new way has been opened up. The way that is spoken of in Isaiah 35, the highway of the Lord prophesied in Isaiah, now in this miracle, that highway is being opened. The prophecy is being fulfilled. The prophecy which says, the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there but The redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In this moment, Jesus is announcing the new way has arrived. The new age is here. The kingdom of God 
is among us. And even as I read that, don't you find yourself longing for that? No more sorrow. No more tears. No more death. No more decay. Only gladness and righteousness in the Lord. Well, the good news today is, is that it has been opened. But we can't yet inhabit the goodness of that news because there is actually some bad news that comes along with it. And that brings us back to the first miracle. So second, no one is worthy to walk in that way. Now, this first miracle that Jesus did is at, at first glance, a little difficult to understand. Jesus has made his way into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Again, this is Gentile territory. And it says that he wants to remain unnoticed, but that was becoming impossible for him. He's got a reputation as a healer, a man of power and authority. And so this woman finds him, Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she says, my daughter has a demon. Can you heal her? Now, Anyone reading this story would be on the edge of their seats, right? Anyone in the first century, the original audience reading the story, they would be on the edge of their seats right now. They would be breathing fast. Their heart would be beating. Why? Not because they're wondering, will Jesus do it? Does he have the power? No, that's already well established. They're, they're going to be, their, their breath is going to be short because of who this woman was and, and that she's actually talking to Jesus. Now, let, let's just, I mean, these terms mean almost nothing to us in the 21st century. But, but Mark, the way he introduces this woman, number one, she's a woman, strike one. Number two, a Syrophoenician by birth. She's a Gentile, strike two. Number three, her daughter has an unclean spirit, which means she is ritually unclean. Strike three. Now, any rabbi worth his salt at this point will cinch his robes up and back away. He doesn't want to become defiled. He doesn't want to become unclean through contact with her. But Jesus doesn't do such a thing. Jesus hears her request. But his response can sound a little caustic to our ears. Listen, verse 27. And he said to her, I mean, she comes, she, she asks him. She knows the, the social mores. She understands what's happening here. But she asks him nonetheless, will you heal my daughter? Cast the demon out. And here's what he says to her. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So in this saying, Jesus acknowledges two categories of people, children and dogs. Okay, that, that much is clear. And Jesus has been emphatic in the Gospels, if you've read them before, that he has come to the lost sheep of Israel. That, that is his mission. He has not come to the Gentiles. Every once in a while, Gentile come in and he'll help them out. But, that's, but he is primarily going to the lost sheep of Israel. He has come for his own people, for the Jews. And so in this little parabolic saying that he gives to this woman, obviously the Jews 
are the children. The children have bread, and he's come to give it to them. So who are the dogs? Obviously, the dogs are the Gentiles. Now, this is not just speculation here. If you had listened into a conversation between a couple of first century Jews and they were talking about Gentiles, you would have heard the word dog often. They would have said it because that, that was their way of referring to Gentiles. So if that sounds offensive, st- stick with me because it will get much worse. Now, <laughs> here's why. Because in our culture, dogs are pets, right? They're beloved. They, they, they wag their tail. They're happy to see you when you come home. They're members of the family. We grieve when they pass on. Like it, it, but that is not what happened in first century uh, Palestine. Uh, there's no evidence that they domesticated dogs at all, zero. So dogs for the first century Jew, they, they were wild. They were unclean. They were scavengers. They, they wandered around the city looking for whatever scraps of anything they could find. And in fact, I mean, they, they were pests, altogether undesirable, like possums or something. Like, you know, like, like you see them and you're like, oh... <laughs> that's, that's it. Okay, so we're, we're on the same page. Good. Now, in fact, if you've read the Old Testament, you will know that one of the worst curses that could be put upon a person was to have them be killed and to have their bodies given over to the dogs. Yes? Case in point, Jezebel. You remember her? She was the paradigm of wickedness in the Old Testament. She was responsible for killing, slaughtering lots of God's prophets. She was crooked all the way down. She was the wife of Ahab, or no, of Jeroboam, excuse me. And um, she was leading the people into deep idolatry, lots of things going against her. And the judgment that God gives to her through his prophets is this, that she will be killed, and as it happens, she is thrown out of a window, And that her dogs, or that the dogs of the city, will devour her so completely that no one could ever look at her and say, oh, that's Jezebel. It it, it was the worst possible curse that could be put upon somebody. So, all this to say, dog, not a neutral term. Not, Not even a little. So, back to Jesus and this woman. She falls to his feet and begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Just in case it isn't clear by now, in Jesus' little saying, the woman is the dog. Now, I wish I could tell you, since we already did a little Greek, I wish I could tell you that we could go look in the Greek and it's less offensive. But you know what it says in the Greek? It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's what it says. It, there's, no, there's no mitigating the offensiveness of this. It's extremely offensive. And I would guess that for most folks, this would make them, like in, in the face of this kind of offense, this would make them take what our ancestors would have called umbrage, deep offense, and they would have walked away because of it. But here's what is so astonishing about this woman. 
She responds. She doesn't take umbrage. She doesn't take, or she may have taken offense, but she does not leave. She responds to Jesus in the following way, verse 28. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, she says, okay, granted that the children have priority. The dogs, too, have a legitimate share in the food, even if it's just the crumbs. She says, I will receive your offense, but I will not leave because I have nowhere else to go. You're my last hope. And Jesus, far from being annoyed by her persistence, responds. He said to her, verse 29, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus gives this woman exactly what she asks for. Now, what is going on here? I think it's this. It's pretty clear that when Jesus responded so offensively to this woman that he wasn't having like a cranky moment. He was hungry and tired. I just want to be alone. And here comes this woman messing with me, taking away what I so desperately long for and have earned. I mean, we, can't, we, we know that it can't be that he initially refuses her because he, he's not willing to perform a miracle for a Gentile. Two chapters ago, in chapter 5, he does it for the, the demoniac on, on the shores of the, of the Gerasenes. Like, he, he performs miracles, even exorcisms, for Gentiles. So it can't be that. He's not refusing her on principle. So why is he refusing her? I think it's pretty clear that he's testing her. He's drawing out from within her all the faith that is there, but that she, not even she knows, lives in there. And that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who's read the Bible because we have an abundance of scriptural evidence that say God tests his people to see what is really inside of them, not because he doesn't know, but because they don't know. Of course he knows everything, but the testing is, is for the sake that they should know, that the tested should know what is in them. God says, like, do you really believe what you say you believe? Then let's test it. And I do this all the time with my students, like when we're having an a, a argumentative discussion, like a full class discussion or a debate or whatever it is. I will, if I see a student who is, who is arguing I will deliberately set myself against them. And I will argue as hard as I know how to against them. Not to, not to make them cower, but to make them rise up. Contend with me. Let me show you what's actually inside of you. And they always impress me. And I love it. And so I think that the real point in this exchange between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman is this. And don't miss this. Jesus is pressing home the point that on the surface of all things, all things being equal, she is unworthy of his help. She has no claim 
on him. She has no right to expect anything from him. It's as if Jesus says, you're asking me for this great work of power, and you do well to recognize my ability to do so. That's number one. But let's settle something right away. I do not owe you this, and you do not have any claim on my help, nor do you deserve it. You do not belong to the household of God, and therefore you are not a child and shall not take the place of a child at the table. So that's why I'm astonished at her response. She says, okay, I accept your statement. I am without question unworthy to receive your help. I am unworthy to have a share in the children's bread. I am owed nothing except that you cast me out as the dog that I am. Therefore, I have no ground on which to stand to make my request except this, that I have heard that you are gracious. I have heard that you are generous with your power. I'm not asking you to throw me the children's bread. I'm only asking for a crumb. Will you do it? And he does it. And in Matthew's account of this miracle, he actually goes on to praise the woman. In Matthew 15, 28, it says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. As a result of that faith and her perseverance, notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't merely throw her a crumb. He gives her exactly what she wants. And the teaching here is plain, is that by faith, she was made worthy of sharing in the children's bread. Now listen, I said that this, that the second miracle, which was the first one we considered, the one with the deaf man and the mute, uh, the speech impediment, I said that the first miracle showed us that in Jesus, a new way has been opened, the way of holiness, the way of the Lord. And according to Isaiah, this way is everything that a person could hope for. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to all those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. Then, so that's the new way that has been opened up. Then I said that this miracle with the Gentile woman actually gives us some bad news, namely that no one is worthy of entering that way. All of us are dogs under the table of God, unclean, unlovely, unlovely, scavenging for whatever we can find. But the truth is there is something alive and vital inside of each human being, some, some inconsolable longing to walk in that way to sit at that table, to be welcomed and received and acknowledged, to share the children's bread with the rest of the children. But the teaching here is plain, that you and I are no such thing. We are not worthy of it. We have no claim on the generosity and the grace of God. 
If you remember, Paul reminds us in Romans 11.35, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? And he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 4, um, what do you have that you have not received? Like, everything is grace. We are owed nothing. Jesus Christ owes us nothing. And therefore, no one has access into the way of everlasting joy. But don't despair. There is more good news to come. And so thirdly, Jesus Christ has made us worthy. Now, I've already hinted at this. There was another occasion, if you'll remember, where Jesus gave offense to some people that he was teaching. We have it recorded in John chapter 7. There, Jesus deeply offends the listening crowds by saying this, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats my flesh, he will never die. Now, everyone who's hearing it assumes that he's instituting some sort of like cannibalism. It sounds very strange and very offensive, especially to Jews. But if you listen to the teaching, it's perfectly clear that eating his flesh is a metaphor for belief in him. But the folks, for the folks that he offended by this saying, Jesus makes no effort whatsoever to clear this up. And they start leaving in droves. Now, I have a feeling that this teaching wasn't meant for all those people. I have a feeling that this teaching was meant for his disciples. Because the next thing he does is he turns towards them. And here's what he does not say. <laughs> all right, guys, just so we're clear, the thing about eating my flesh it's a metaphor. We, we're, we're all clear on this, right? He, he takes no pains whatsoever to clear it up for his disciples. He just turns to them and says, are you going to leave too? Are you that offended? And this is the exact same moment that that Gentile woman has with Jesus. It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And it's almost as if Jesus is implicitly saying, are you going to leave? He's not being unnecessarily provocative or offensive. Like, he's testing her. He's testing all those people that he's speaking to. Here is a teaching that can be wildly misunderstood by the masses, and it causes offense and outrage amongst them. And look, they have rejected me for it, Jesus says. And the masses for, for the masses that fled, Jesus was a stumbling block from which they simply cannot recover. He has offended us, good riddance. But Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you offended? Are you going to leave too? And you know that most magnificent of responses from Peter. In verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, none of us is worthy to sit at the family table and share the children's bread. Not one. 
And the one person who could grant us access to that table stands as a stumbling block to our inclusion. But the good news is this. He doesn't intend that by stumbling we should fall. Let me say that again. He does not intend that by stumbling we should fall. He intends that by causing us to stumble that we will inhabit those magnificent words of Peter, where else can we go? To whom shall we go? There's there's nothing else for us. And when we come to see that we are owed nothing, when we come to believe that we're mere dogs roaming the streets, existing only to find some crumb to satisfy our hunger that has fallen from somebody's table, when we come to believe that we are unworthy of his help, only then will we be truly staggered by what happens next. At the end of Jesus' teaching here, he says this, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So long ago, Isaiah prophesied that God would, in his great kindness, open up a new way of everlasting joy, everlasting gladness. But no one unclean would ever walk in it. So God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, took that problem upon himself. The living bread of Christ's flesh, the children's bread, was given the treatment of Jezebel. It was thrown to the dogs and mangled beyond recognition so that nobody who passed by him could look at him and say, oh, that's Jesus. He was as one from whom men hide their faces. And and as he did this, Jesus our Lord became as one unclean and unworthy. And this was the final and greatest offense to those who followed Jesus. Your teacher was put to public shame, crucified, condemned. But despite all their difficulties in remaining true, and there were some, there was a confession buried deep in the bones of the disciples that held on even in the face of this calamity. Where else can we go? There's nowhere else. And so when Christ's body was broken, it became the meal by which dogs are made into children. Whoever feasts on this body shall be made a son and daughter of God. And that should take your breath away because God owed us nothing except condemnation and judgment. What he gave us instead was the broken body of Jesus. He gave us the forgiveness of sins for all who believe. And now we have a place at his everlasting table. So great was his kindness and generosity. Do you believe this? I mean, it's it's entirely probable that somebody is sitting here listening to me right now who has been offended by Jesus for whatever reason. It could be that the teaching I just gave up here is offensive to you. How can you say that God owes me nothing? I I showed up today. Here I am at church, pay my taxes, faithful to my spouse, 
a reasonably good person? (laughs) How can you say that you're just a dog scavenging for crumbs who is owed nothing? Well, my first answer to your question is, I didn't say that. Jesus did. If you have beef, it's not with me. It's with him. Second answer, if you are offended by being called a dog, unworthy, unclean, then take heart. He is not trying to send you away. He is testing you. He does not intend that by stumbling you should fall. He intends that by stumbling you should find that you have nowhere else to go. Learn from the Gentile woman. Learn from the disciples. In John chapter 6, though Christ offended them deeply, they were desperate enough to know they had no other options. They had nowhere else to turn but to trust Jesus with their lives. And so the invitation for you today is to believe that by his atoning death, your sins are forgiven. And he intends far more for you than to consign you under the table to scavenge for crumbs. If you will only believe... There is a feast in store for you. And I'll end with one of the most beautiful portraits of that feast that I know of from Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, it's time for us to come to the table. And I reckon I don't have to do much work to convince you why we come to this table after all that I just said. This is the table of Christ's grace. There are people who are invited to this table, and there are people who are not invited to this table. The only criterion for partaking of this meal is that there is a confession buried deep in your bones that says, where else will I go? To whom shall I go? That's it. The paradox of our faith is that only those who know themselves to be unworthy of this meal are invited to the feast because we know that we have been made worthy by the love and the merit of another. The only people who are not invited to this table are those who are well put together, who still live under the illusion that they can manage and run their own lives. People for whom all things are going well. People whose dignity is so intact that they cannot bear to be called a dog. 
but to all the wretched, to all the miserable, to all the sorrowful in heart, Jesus Christ says to you, come. And so on his behalf, I say to you, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for uh, the good words, the good teachings of our Lord Jesus. They're like jewels to us, like much fine gold. They go down into the deepest parts of our hearts and our souls, and they make us glad. And so, Father, we love you, and we give you thanks. And now as we come to this table, we pray that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that Christ, our host, welcomes us, receives us, not, not with um, not with ambivalence, but with great joy. So, Father, give us real strength as we come and partake. You know that we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, if you belong to him, this meal is yours. You may come.